let's pray together. Thank the Lord for his word and ask him to bless it to us. Lord, we're grateful that we can be together and we thank you that you've given us the truth and we thank you that your spirit is among us to guide us into truth. Please help us now, we ask. Uh, open our eyes that apart from your grace would be blind. Move in our hearts, which apart from your grace would be hard. Uh, stir us in our wills, which apart from your grace would be self-centered. We ask that you would now teach us, and make us more like Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. As we begin the new year, the gospel is on the world. The, the gospel is on the move around the world. In a southern Asian nation, the government is hostile toward followers of Jesus Christ. And an official interrogator began to question someone who was following Jesus. Ultimately, he became a disciple. The Lord moved him to go to relatives from whom he had been estranged and lived in a neighboring country, and they came to know the Lord. And now disciples are multiplying there. It's really amazing. Our need is to understand and to live by God-centered convictions. The Lord wants us to be people of collective courage. Opposition is the topic that's before us this morning, and it comes right from the verses we just read, Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 27. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Acts 4, 23 to 27. It is the place where we have the first record of the church encountering opposition. Now, Luke organizes this account around a center point that's really easy to see. It's the center point of holy boldness. And uh, true to her call, the emerging church needs to be a group of people that are faithful in witnessing for the Lord. In a word, what she needs is grace-spawned courage. And so if you look at the center, there are 15 verses here uh, that we just read. In, look right down at the center, uh, and you'll find in verse 29, the church asks the Lord, give us boldness. And then in verse 30, there's a reference to, Lord, we're counting on you to continue to be with us as we encounter this opposition. And sure enough, verse 31, we're told that the Lord comes through and he gives the church the boldness that she needs. Now, there's a lead-up topic to the boldness, and there's one that follows this focus on boldness. You'll see that the lead-up is in verses 23 to 31, United prayer, and what follows is united care. So prayer first, care second. And together, what these verses do is they show us that the Lord shapes his people through the challenges that he allows, he allows in their lives. Any challenges in your life? 
Did it ever imagine, did it ever occur to you that the Lord might be using those to shape you? Well, that's exactly what's happening here. So, first of all, this united prayer. And, and what Luke does is he says to us, basically, look, collective Christian courage depends upon biblical praying in confidence in the sovereignty of God. You want to grow? Get with other believers, pray out of a conviction that God is really sovereign in all the things that happen in your life. Well, what's the background? In the name of Jesus, Peter and John have just healed a man who is lame from birth. Uh, they heal him in the name of Jesus totally and instantly. And that miracle draws many others to faith in Christ. Uh, the number now jumps up to, we're told, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, the number jumps up to 5,000 men. How many women and children were included in that number that now belong to the Lord? We don't know. Some commentators estimate there may have been 10,000 people now in this new church. Imagine covenant growing from her current size to 10,000 overnight. <laughs> well, the religious leaders are not happy. They're not happy because Peter have, and John have, been, have performed this miracle in the name of Jesus, somebody where they have had a hand in crucifying. And now he is proclaimed to be risen from the dead. So they have a number of problems on their hands. Now they try to put a lid on the miracle. They throw Peter and John in prison. The next day they interrogate them and, and threaten them. But the crowd is praising God for all that's happened. They can't believe this. And so now what the, will the religious leaders do? There's a groundswell of popular support. How can they oppose that? Especially, how can they oppose it when it's over something that's good? The healing of a man who's been lame from birth. With no recourse, we're told, verse 22, they let Peter and John go. And that brings us now to the section that we just read. Peter and John go back and they report to, uh, the text says, they report to their friends um, the things that uh, have happened as they face the religious leaders. It's interesting. Uh, it doesn't say, the, uh, the Greek text doesn't say friends, it says to their own. And right away you see that what Luke is doing is he's kind of setting up an us-them scenario, and we'll see it more clearly in a couple moments. There are Peter and John and the believers on the one hand, and there are the religious leaders on the other hand. What's the line of demarcation? Jesus. He's the dividing line, and he's always been the dividing line. Well, verse 24, what will the church do? They lift up their voices together, and they say, Sovereign Lord, uh, the people of God pray with one voice. 
And they extol God by saying, you made heaven and earth and the seas and all the things that are in them. Through the mouth of our father David, you spoke and you said, why do the Gentiles rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth upset themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. What an introduction. These baby Christians pray God's word right back to him. They know what their Bibles say. More than that, though, they know how to use their Bibles. They pray God's word back to him, and then they say, verses 25 and 26, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then, verse 27, everybody was gathered against us here in Jerusalem, Herod and Pontius Pilate, and the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. These early believers get it. They make a horizontal link, first of all. David lived in a world where there was spiritual conflict, and we live in a world where there's spiritual conflict. But they get more than that. They make the vertical link. They say, since we belong to God, all this just happened, and that all includes the healing, the opposition from the religious leaders, the jail time, um, the interrogation, the threats. Verse 28, please look at it. All this that happened was to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, just think about that string of words for a moment. The early church says, Lord, in what we've experienced, we see whatever has happened, every possibility that might have happened, whatever has taken place, whatever your hand, that is, you have been involved intimately in the unfolding of history here, it's not by chance, whatever your plan Whatever your hand created and how that's in keeping with the way in which you're moving history, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What a sentence. And let's remember, this is linked to the verse 24 where they begin with a statement, Sovereign Lord. How do they think about God? Is he anemic? Does he need a little more energy in his life? No. He maps out exactly what's going to happen, and he does exactly what he maps out, because he's Lord of all. <laughs> now you know how it is. For centuries, Christians have been arguing about God's sovereignty uh, with questions like this. Well, is God really in control? How much control does he have? If he is in control, then how do you reconcile that with the notion of free will? And are my choices really meaningful in this world, or am I simply a robot? 
Well, back in the first century, in Jerusalem, there are thousands of people who hear about the resurrection of Christ, and they witness the healing of a lame man, and the result, they get on the same page with one another and the same page with the teaching of Scripture to confess God's great power and his infinite wisdom. Amazing. They acknowledge God is sovereign, and they lay before him their need for boldness. And the Lord answers it. Look at verse 31. When they had prayed, the place was shaken, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Yeah, we can raise all kinds of questions about God's sovereignty. We can do that, and we can have all kinds of discussions, academic and internal, you know, debates about that. But at the end of the day, where we conclude that subject has a significant bearing on our character. Willingness to be a faithful witness for Christ is shaped by what a person believes about God's control in our private worlds and also in our global world. It is utterly, I don't know, I don't know how to say this. It, it is such a stretch to imagine that Covenant Church could have any impact on the ends of the earth apart from the power of God. But that's exactly what the Bible says. We have a stake in the unfolding of God's great plan all around planet earth today. Not because we're so great. We're weak, aren't we? Easily confused. But because of God's great power. So when you're in a tough spot, anybody here in a tough spot? Thank you, Howard. Well, turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord. That's what the early church does. Scared to talk to other people about Jesus? Turn to the Lord. He's in control. He's got you covered. That simple truth is intended to settle your nerves. It's intended to give you peace that passes all understanding. Let me just make one more comment here about uh, people's understanding of the Bible and their use of the Bible. The question that's before the early church is, all right, we can see that there's a connection between David's life of conflict and our lives. We can see that connection. But then what do they do with it? You know, funerals are more or less difficult. Um, one of the things that I really love about a Christian funeral is being able to say to the family of the deceased, would you please show me 
Bible. Could I please look at the Bible? You know what I find? It's so interesting. Uh, you just you start and you say to yourself, hmm, where are the pages worn and dirty? And so you start there and you look and you find. And then you sort of flip through and you, oh yeah, here's some notes on the front and notes in the back. And then you start paging through it and you see that there are also notes in the margin and certain verses are underlined and then there are references to other verses and arrows and people's Bibles end up looking a mess. But they are so helpful because what they show us is how people use God's word to shape the decisions that they make. Well, collective Christian courage depends upon biblical praying that's grounded in the confidence that God is sovereign. And that's what we find in these opening verses here. But that is not all. Early believers also, they were united in prayer, but they were united in care. So look with me now at verses 32 to 38. Verse 32 we read, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, but had everything in common. Those, those words, one heart, one soul, those are instructive for us. Um, they were united, one heart, in their desires. They were united in one soul, in their affections. That unity made a profound difference then in the way they treated each other. They are united, that is, life is not my way, it doesn't have to be my way, but life is about our way as Christians. And this is only because of the work of the Holy Spirit who is one with the Father and one with the Son. So he's shaping people and softening people and drawing people to himself and to one another. And so these believers make a conclusion. The conclusion is this. I'm going to surrender my opinions, my convictions, my preferences, and the control of my stuff for the sake of those who are less fortunate than I. It's not because I have to, it's because I want to. I get to do it because Jesus has made the ultimate sacrifice for me. He's laid down his life. He didn't think that equality with God was something to which he had to cling, but was willing to humble himself and become a servant. And I'm willing to do the same thing. One commentator has put it like this. What's in view here is not ownership, but stewardship. Not creed, but need. Not fad, but family. And so in verses 32 and 34, we read, they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them. So how would an early church of thousands 
be able to administer this kind of caring and sharing. How'd they do it? Well, verses 34 to 37 tell us. People who had stuff, they chose to liquidate it and take the proceeds and lay it at the apostles' feet. They seem to have this attitude. God says it. I believe it. That settles it. He wants me to be generous with my stuff. He wants me to be generous with my will. I'm willing to do it. And then Luke concludes by telling us about Barnabas. Uh, his name means son of encouragement, and he certainly lives up to his name, doesn't he? He sells a field. He brings the proceeds to the apostles. Now, the driving force in all this, well, look at the end of verse 33. Great grace was upon all of them. Grace, unmerited favor. Grace, having experienced kindness from the Lord when you deserve his judgment. But not just grace, great grace was upon all of them. Have you experienced God's great grace? I know, in many cases you have. And the Bible says because of Jesus, it's a free gift, right? It's not something we earn, it's not something we deserve. He just chose to extend himself to us when we were the most needy. And so John tells us, as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become the children of God to those that believe on his name. Have you believed on his name? If not, this could be your moment. So why not invite Christ to be your master and Lord? Why not surrender your will to him with all the implications? Why not do that today? Another takeaway from what we just read is this. Compare yourself to the early church. Now, the Lord reveals himself to us by showing us who Christ is, but the Lord also reveals himself to us by showing us how believers act. So compare yourself to these early Christians. To what extent have you learned to flex for the sake of others? Or do you have to have things go your way all the time? Does it, has to be, does it have to be your way at work or somebody's going to pay? Does it have to be your way at church or are you going to make it happen? Does it have to be your way at home or will your family members bear the brunt of your commitment to control life? And then a third question that bubbles up from the example of these believers is this one. To what extent are you looking out for the needs of those around you that are less fortunate than yourself? To what extent are you looking out for them? 
to see how you might serve them. This is the wonderful thing about grace. It's for any and it's for all who will come to the Lord seeking his help. Well, as the early church, we certainly need boldness, don't we? We need boldness in speaking for the Lord. We need boldness in letting go of our stuff so we can bless others. So Luke shows us, first of all, that courageous Christians, they demonstrate the kind of generosity that makes it possible to care for people who are more needy than they. And he started by making this point that collective Christian courage depends upon biblical praying that's grounded in the confidence of God's sovereignty. Praying and caring in difficult times. Now, where might we get another example, a more current example, of people who lived like this? 17th century England was a time of great social upheaval, civil war, political crisis. This is when revivalists, George Whitfield and Charles Wesley emerged. The Lord brought them on the scene of history at that point in time. Revival swept the nation. And between 1738 and 1791, an estimated 1.3 million people in England came to know the Lord. What those two men did is they leaned into the crisis of the moment to serve the Lord in the place where he had stationed them. And as we begin a new year, might you also lean into what God is doing? Might you say, Lord, I give you my prayers and I give you my care for other people. Please give me your grace and make me a bold witness for you in the days that are ahead. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless it to us and change us by it. Thank you that we now have the privilege of celebrating the Lord's Supper together. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, with the elders who are going to help serve communion, please come up. As you come up, we're going to sing a song, Nada, name, and the song is numbered 677. Praise the Savior, you who know him, you who can tell how much we owe him. Let's stand together and sing. Thank you. 